Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. And this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had a while ago with one of my favorite authors, Donald Miller. You may be familiar with him through his most recent work, Building a Story Brand, which outlines the solution for struggling businesses when they just don't know how to connect with their potential customers and helps by revealing the secret of using the seven universal story points and using that to simplify your brand's message so people can understand it. I have read the book. It's an amazing book. I own it. But not only that, I have actually gone through a story brand workshop a few years ago with actually a number of people that were guests on this show live in person in Nashville with Donald, which was a great experience. Donald actually got interested in those seven universal story points when he was approached by some filmmakers to help write a screenplay about his book, Blue Like Jazz. And then he documented that process in what's honestly one of my favorite books ever, his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, which talks all about his experience with those two movie producers, uh, turning his memoir into a movie and the process that he found himself in, which launched him into a new story filled with risk and possibility and meaning and got him thinking about how those about how those seven elements of story are a catalyst to living a truly great life. So I thought this conversation was a really good one to dig back out again and share with newer listeners, as well as revisit if you've heard it before. It is really cool to listen back through. And I even picked up some new things again. So I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Donald Miller. This week, I am privileged to speak with Donald Miller. Welcome to the show, Don. Great to be with you. As an author, you're, you're self-described as sitting in your underwear and you write sort of memoirs and spend years making mistakes and then learning how to make up for those mistakes and then you write about it. So. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much how it goes. It's kind of a good shtick if you can if you can do it. When did you decide? Okay, I'm going to start writing. Like writing's a thing. I'm interested in this. I think I might be good at it. You know, it's probably in in high school when I decided I wanted to be a writer and. Um, lost track of that for about 10 years in some ways, but then kind of came back into it when I got a job at a publishing company, just basically as a sales guy and got to see behind the scenes, how books are written, how it works. Thought, man, I should try to write one of these. Uh, so started writing at night. That book ended up getting published and, and then my, my career switched from publishing over to writing and then later would start my own little publishing company. Never published my own books. So kind of had, had, have had hands in both worlds for a long time, but my entire professional career has all been in, in essentially the business of books, both writing them and publishing them and marketing them and all that kind of stuff. So your first book was originally titled Prayer in the Art of Volkswagen Maintenance, later published as Through Painted Deserts, sold okay, 
but yet you decided to do it again. What was the story behind, okay, I'm going to try again? Well, it's, uh, it's a humbling story. Uh, the first book didn't sell enough copies that any publishers were, were excited to print me again. And so there, was, there weren't a lot of people knocking down my door. And I did have a little publishing company of my own. It was just barely breaking even, a brand new company, warehoused the books in my basement. But I knew if I wrote another book, I could get a little money for rent. So I started working on another book. That book was called Blue Like Jazz. And when it, it came out, it, it also didn't do very well for the first year. And then the second year, it really took off and, and started selling a lot more copies. I got so busy just supporting the book that I, I ended up dissolving my publishing company and became a full-time writer at that point. But sadly, it was really a financial decision. I, I knew I could write a book and, and get some money for rent. And then that book ended up becoming a bestseller. And so I had to spend several years writing just to keep up with the demand. Blue Like Jazz obviously was a New York Times bestseller and spent, what, 40 weeks, I think, on the, the bestseller list. And I think the reason for that, there was kind of a need for it or a, a, it was a refreshing. In other words, you weren't playing it safe, you, you know, in terms of non-religious thoughts on Christian spirituality. And I personally have always felt kind of somewhat similar in that sense that it's too religious for some people, not religious enough for others, and you get caught in the middle and that right. this kind of – met that gap where a lot of people, especially younger people at this time, were, were feeling that, that I don't fit in in either place. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, because my first book didn't sell very many copies, I really just didn't think anybody was going to read the book. So I was a lot more honest than I would have been if I'd have known it was going to get a lot <laughs> right. of people reading it. I thought it would be just, just my friends would read it. But I guess it did. I guess it spoke to some things that we were all feeling that, that hadn't, hadn't been voiced yet. So I'm, I'm really grateful. I'm, I'm grateful that I got to write the book and it's, it's created so many connections with so many folks. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of kept the dialogue of what the thread, at least, of what you were talking about in Blue Like Jazz with the, the next book, Searching for God Knows What. And kind of the success, though, at that point in time of Blue Like Jazz had kind of started to set certain expectations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of your listeners can probably identify, you know, when you succeed at something, whatever you're doing often gets more difficult because people have very high expectations for whatever it is that you offer. And so I went through a season of real writer's block and frustration and just kind of frozen in my ability to write. So I went from, you know, being able to write a book in under a year to taking two years and three years and, you know, even four years to finally get another book out. And a lot of that was because of the success, because the expectations were so high that the pressure ended up getting to me. And also, you know, we'll get it into a little bit later, just some work habits that I had to correct as well, not just discipline, but actual, actually the way I structured my day. Uh, so kind of getting over the fear of meeting people's expectations along with adjusting how my workday flowed helped me overcome the slowness in my ability to write. And now I feel like I'm back at, at my earlier pace before I ever succeeded. I'm, I'm back to that original pace of getting up and getting a lot done every day. So then kind of moving on a little bit further, the next book was originally titled To Own a Dragon, and it's a book about growing up without a father, and then a few years later it was expanded and re-released as father fiction. And for me personally, that really rung true again because, you know, my dad was around, but he may as well not have been, and there wasn't any kind of a literal, you know, physical abuse or anything like that, but there was maybe some verbal or, you yeah. know, just apathy, and it was just, it made me more aware of just that that whole mentoring need 
And then we come to the point in time where, which was hilarious to me when I started reading A Million Miles in a Thousand Years to suddenly start reading the name Steve Taylor because I'd listened to his music as a high schooler and to suddenly have him and you in be characters in this meta book that's also about <laughs> screenwriting and life and writing a fictional version of yourself and you know how the principles of screenwriting in terms of wrestling with writing the screenplay of Blue Like Jazz you bring those elements of story into writing a real good life story and <laughs> there's probably the weirdest experience I've had in reading a book ever probably <laughs> so I hope that's a good thing. No, it was very a good thing. I think that's that was awesome. one of the things. And honestly, in recent – literally this past month, there's been a number of my friends who have been saying, what's a good book? What's a good book? And a number of them have been telling each other a million miles in a thousand years. And so it's because it's almost that narrative version of the more recent stuff you've been doing with Storyline, which kind of explains it and, and hashes it out in a – it almost a move. It's almost the movie version of storyline in in some senses. So. Yeah, yeah. What happened? I mean, the big story is some guys, some some filmmakers came to me and said they wanted to make a movie out of my memoir, and they wanted me to co-write the movie with them. So we spent the better part of two years actually writing a story based loosely on some stuff that had taken place in my book or a season of that. But for me, what, what gave me a second life was the introduction to how narrative works. And the, those couple years, you know, I attended seminars, went to workshops, read tons of books, and studied the art of storytelling. And uh, it fascinated me. I mean, I just got completely compelled by uh, how narrative structures work and how they actually can compel a human mind. Uh, narrative is the most unbelievable way to get somebody's attention and get them to focus and get them to hear whatever it is that you were wanting them to hear. And so that turned into two divisions of a company that I started. And one is called Storyline, where we actually help people understand their own lives as a narrative. And we help them edit their lives as though they're editing a story. So we're going to cut these characters out because they're not good for the story. We're going to clarify your ambitions because characters that don't have very clear ambitions are muddled and they live in confusion. And what we people find is the more they edit their life like a story, the clearer their life actually gets and the more kind of sane you are when you treat your life like this. So we have a, a company called Storyline where we help people do their life plans and they can do that either by ordering our Storyline book or you actually attend one of our conferences. And then we're about to release a, a digital version where you can take our course and, and just do the life plan online. Then the other company that we launched is called Story Brand, And it basically helps companies understand how narrative structure works and then develop a brand strategy based on the power of narrative structure. It all sounds pretty complicated, but essentially we're saying to most companies – Nobody really understands what you're offering because you're so confusing in your messaging. Sit down and go through this process and you'll find a lot of clarity and customers will finally understand why what you offer matters to them. And so those are the two divisions of the company. But the thing that I get to do is I get to just sit around thinking about stories all day, whether I'm watching a television commercial, studying the narrative structure, or sitting down and talking to somebody about their life and looking at the narrative structure of, the, of their life. I get to sit around and think about stories all the time, which which I'm in heaven, you know, I just yeah. love it. So what are some of those narrative structure pieces that make up a good story and thus a, a great life? Well, if you break down stories and I'm talking about, let's, you know, the movies that you see, the most common elements. And when I say the most common elements, I, I also mean the most powerful elements that captures audiences is this structure. You have a character who has a problem. 
They meet a guide. The guide gives them a plan that breaks through their confusion. Then the guide calls them to take action against their problem or their enemy. And that action either results in a, in a comedy, a happy ending, or a tragedy. And uh, that's it. I mean, that's Star Wars, Hunger Games, Tommy Boy. I mean, you name it, that's it. I've uh, never heard those three movies mentioned in the same <laughs> ever. They are the same <laughs> film. They're the exact same film. Uh, I mean, that, they're the exact same narrative structure. It, it's just You just lay different characters and different problems over the same structure. But that's the structure that the human mind uh, responds to. And so when we're talking about our lives as real people, those elements need to be clarified. And, and the thing about a story, what makes a story great, one of the things that makes a story great is it's clear. It's not muddled. There's not a wasted word in the dialogue. There's not a wasted scene. And I think when I'm sitting down to help people figure out their life plans, they're very confused. They're very confused about what they want. They usually are playing too many roles. Uh, there are characters coming in and out of their story that are not serving the purpose of their lives. And so the relationships are a little bit out of whack. Those are the things that we attempt to work on as we're creating their life plan. So they come out the other side, make a few changes, and everything gets clear. And when you're living a very efficient story, it's the same as when you're sitting in a theater watching one. It just makes sense, and you're compelled, and you're interested. But when your story is not clear, and you don't know exactly what you want, you're unwilling to face the conflict, you don't have a plan, and there are too many characters in your life, the story can be very confusing and muddled and give the person experiencing that life a sense that life is meaningless. And it's not actually that life is meaningless. It's just that what you've done with your life is giving it the feel of meaninglessness. And we can fix that. And so uh, that's, that's kind of what we do. There's also, in terms of script writing, there's the other thing called an inciting incident. Yeah, it, there's a truth in story structure that characters won't change on their own accord. Uh, you, if, you, you know, if I were writing a movie about a guy, you know, he's a nice guy, and 10 minutes into the film, he suddenly wanted to become a great athlete. Nobody would really buy that because none of us have those experiences where we wake up one day and we decide we're going to do something. Uh, a character has to be forced into action. So he falls in love with a girl who's a trainer at the gym and she only likes athletic guys. Well, that's an inciting incident. Now he has to become athletic if he's going to get the girl. Uh, you have to force the character to take action. So one of the things that we love helping our clients do is figure out real life inciting incidents in their life. And so if you sign up for a marathon and you raise $10,000 for some uh, charity, if you finish the marathon, that's an inciting incident. Now you are forced to take action. So we, we like to help guys figure out what, what is the inciting incident that's going to get you to move forward on this ambition that you've clarified. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent 
fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So then after the million miles in a thousand years period of, you know, the book's done, you're touring, you're promoting, and then that's over, storyline, the conference starts coming out, the workbook comes out, the online cloud-based dashboard and, and all of that. I believe there's probably a period in here somewhere where you weren't writing any books. In fact, there's not been a, I mean, the storyline's a workbook, It's mm-hmm. but it's not another, you know, quote unquote memoir or your Donald Miller style book. Is that the period where you were basically, you know, stuck and the, the storyline productivity schedule steps in? Pretty much. Yeah. What, what happened was I was in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. I lived in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it had been three years since I'd been able to get a book written. And essentially my day kind of looked like this. I'd wake up, I knew that I needed to write, uh, but there was that resistance that you face. I didn't want to do it, so I'd do some other things. And, of course, I was running a company at the time, so there were plenty of ways that I could distract myself. So I wouldn't get the work done. I'd say, oh, I'll do it after lunch. Then I wouldn't get it done after lunch. Then in the evening, some friends would want to go out. So I'd end up going out with my friends the whole time feeling guilty and miserable because I didn't get my writing done. And when I sat down to write, it wasn't always the best experience. It was always very difficult. The words did, didn't seem to come. And I thought, well, I've either got writer's block or I'm just no longer inspired to do this kind of work. So I took a cross-country road trip and uh, I ended up ordering every audio book I could find on writer's block, the creative process, willpower, organizing your time, all sorts of kind of psychology slash business books. And by the time I got to where I was going, which was Washington, D.C., where I was going to spend a season working, I had learned some really valuable tools to help me restructure my day. For instance, the brain has much more energy in the morning than it does in the late afternoon or the evening. So you should really focus on your most important projects right out of bed because you're going to have the most muscle. It really is a muscle so it would be kind of like, you know, if you need to lift a bunch of weights, you should do it in the morning when you're the strongest because you're going to get weaker throughout the day. Right. And uh, Dr. Neil Fiore did a lot of research on procrastination, and, and he realized that for his clients, one of the things that made them not want to sit down to do their work was that they felt like if I sit down and do my work, I'm missing out on the good life. I'm missing out on an enjoyable life because I have to sit down and do this work that I don't want to do. So he would have his clients just write down before they sat down in the morning to do their work. He would have them write down all the things that they get to enjoy later in the day. And he found that once they wrote down all the things they were going to get to enjoy later in the day, whether it's a date night with their spouse or they're going to go see a movie or they get to hang out with friends or there's just going to be a great meal tonight, it didn't matter. They faced much less resistance to sit down and do their work and they could overcome procrastination by really understanding, you know, I'm not missing out on a good life. I just need to do this work right now. And the good life I get to have scattered throughout the day anyway. And that to me was ended up being a very powerful tool. So another one was uh, Dr. Victor Frankel's understanding that if you pretend that you're living this day over again for the second time and you ask yourself, what mistakes should I not make today uh, that I made the first time I lived this day? It's a bit of a mental trick. He found that his clients had a much greater reverence for life. Uh, they were more 
intentional about relationships. They worried less about things that were trivial. And so these were some of the little tips that I actually took into my workday. And so what I did is I just took a piece of notebook paper and I created my own day planner day in which I only would focus on three projects per day. I would make sure that I focused on the most important one in the morning. I had a little to-do list section on my little piece of notebook paper. So for minor things, just to get them out of the clutter of my brain, I would write them down. I would write down, if I could live today over again, what would I do differently? I wrote down things that I get to enjoy today, and I wrote down my appointments along with the theme, my life theme at the bottom of the page. And I used this and ended up writing a book in only four months. And that's an incredible pace. Wow. Uh, Eight months is the fastest I'd ever written a book before, and that was before writer's block or whatever I was struggling with. But I found that the resistance went away because I was tackling the book in the morning. I was giving it my whole uh, mind and the power of my whole mind, so it was easier. The writing was actually better, and I would get to the end of my day and just really enjoy enjoy my day. So it was actually really great for my mental health. And I wrote the book in four months. It took It's taken probably two or three more months to edit it. And I took breaks, you know, several months off between the writing and editing process, but uh, an unbelievable night and day shift in my work. And so I actually called our in-house designer for Storyline and Storybrand and, and had him lay out the page for me so that it looked good. But I really just did it for myself. I wanted to three-hole punch it, put it in a binder and wake up every day and fill out the page. I was telling so many people about it and giving them copies of it that we actually created a PDF. We call it the Storyline Productivity Schedule. It's 30 pages of this day planner and about 10 pages of me explaining the psychology behind it. And we just gave it away free online. Anybody can go type in your email address and you've got the Storyline Productivity Schedule. So we now have 25,000 people. We, we just did this a couple months ago. We have 25,000 people around the country who've downloaded it and are using it. And we're, we're hearing great stories about how it's cha- completely changed the way people work. And they're, they're actually enjoying their work now. It's been fun. And anybody who wants it can get it. It's it's storylineblog.com. And then you'll see on the right-hand side a little picture of a day planner. And you put in your email address and we'll email you that PDF. And there's no catch. We just want you to do better work. I have to ask, obviously, it's in a digital format for download purposes. But Mm -hmm. is there a reason that you particularly like to have it in an analog form, a, a pen and paper form? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, we've had people come to us and say, hey, can we digitize this? And I've even thought, man, it would be great if you could just go online and fill this out every day. Um, I actually personally probably wouldn't use it digitally. I I really like the fact that one piece of my life is is on paper. And uh, I carry around a zipped up binder and my calendar is online. My contacts are obviously online all that stuff. But this piece of paper, well, including my life plan, I carry around my life plan with me too, is, uh, is just in a, in a binder. And I like the therapeutic process of sitting down every morning and filling this thing out. We, we may digitize it someday. I don't think there's a big rush to do it. Obviously, it's a free product, so it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it would be very expensive to do that. Uh, and we don't want to charge for it. We, we want people to be able to have it for free. Yeah. But I, I really like the physical aspect of it. I, I don't think I knew how much I missed paper. But uh, I do yeah. I like there's, it. There's there's something tangible about it. There's almost maybe I mean sacred might be another word someone would use. Yeah, there's just, some. It's like it's, yeah. like it's partly how I journal. You know, when I write down the things I get to enjoy today, or what I would do uh, differently if this were the second time I were living this day. Those are really reflective 
statements. And even my life theme, the fact that I'm, I'm writing it, physically writing it every day, where, of course, if we digitize that, it would just naturally trans, transfer over each day and you would never type it in. But I'm physically writing it, reminding myself, this is what I'm, this is what I'm here for. And anything that comes at me that doesn't fit within my life theme, and my life theme, personal life theme is to help people live a better story. So if I get opportunities that would make me a lot of money, but they're not helping people live a better story, I now have a filter with which I can say, as much as I'd love the money, I've got to say no to that. That's not what my life is about. Yeah. And maybe it's also the fact that it takes maybe more time. Maybe it's worth slowing down to decide these things. I think, yeah, I I agree. I agree. I, I counsel people to do it on paper, you know. I mean, you could easily create a an Excel spreadsheet or something to yeah. type all this stuff in. But definitely, uh, I like paper. Well, in the last couple minutes here, I wanted to ask you about some of the other solutions you've found for productivity, particularly the, the words, two words you've used lately called focus and finish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've written that. If I could do my today over again, what would you do? I've written that several times in the past few weeks, focus and finish. And those are two great words, Eric, because I think a lot of us get into trouble because we're doing too many things. We're playing too many roles. We've got too many projects going on. Uh, we're not focused on one of them. And then the other thing that probably a lot of us have the bad habit of doing is not finishing well. I am a really great starter. I love starting projects. In the middle of them, ugh, you know, it's like, ah, oh, we're still doing this. I'm still yeah. having to think about this. But nothing changes the world if we don't finish it. And we have to actually finish this book and get it out there. We have to finish this web page and put it out there for people to see. We have to finish things. That's what changes the world are, are just the things that we finish. And so those are two things that I'm trying to cultivate this year, the power of focus and the power of finishing. That's awesome. Yeah, that, those are the words. I think I'm starting to adopt those words myself. That's why it kind of resonated again. <laughs> good, it's like I, I start so many things. I got to finish. And, and to finish, <laughs> you got to focus. So Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. Donald, I know you have a, a love-hate relationship with Twitter, but where can people find you there? At Donald Miller on Twitter. I tend to tweet a little bit of business advice, but uh, every once in a while, you'll just get a picture of my dog. So Awesome. Don, it's been just an awesome time to, to talk with you again. So thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Eric. Appreciate your time. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope you enjoyed listening in on this conversation I had with Donald Miller. I was really thrilled to re-release this and honestly re-listen to it. I went back through it again, got some new stuff out of it. And I'm actually going to revisit the Million Miles in a Thousand Years and Story Brand because I think those are key effective pieces for me to reapproach and integrate into what I've been doing lately. But what about you? I'd love to hear from you as well as I'd love for you to share this episode. By the way, I will put the link to the story brand productivity schedule as well as Donald's books and all of that in the show notes for this episode, which you will find at beyond the to do list.com slash three zero eight. And also while you were listening to this, if you thought of somebody who would enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to share it with them. Hit the share button wherever you are listening to this on your desktop, on on the go, of course, if you're driving, wait till later, but make a note. Let your personal assistant on your phone, whatever flavor you use, make a note for you to share this with that person. And if you do that, I'd just love to say thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next episode. Next episode.